0: Hello and welcome to the Film Comet Podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the digital producer. As was the case for many young degenerates, John Waters was my gateway to bad taste and American independent cinema. I first saw Polyester on Bravo when I was in high school, a cable channel now better known for a totally different type of trash. I enjoyed a brief chat with Mr. Waters a few weeks ago, before he appeared on FX's Feud as William Castle, which is why I didn't ask him about it. Besides his movies, Trump, reality TV, beehives, and Parker Tyler all came up. Here's our conversation. You really wouldn't ever be interested in doing a television show again or...
1: Oh, of course I would. I wrote for HBO the sequel to Hairspray if it didn't get made. Of course I would.
0: (laughs) Do you feel like that's more of a fertile... I mean, you've obviously been focusing more on things in the art world or, you know, writing books or doing sort of these speaking engagements, but, I mean, if there was an opportunity... No, no, no. I've had
1: four. That isn't completely true. It's the ones you know about. I had four different development deals with Hollywood Studios that they paid me to write something that never got made. Oh, so I continue to do that, and that still pays better than any of the other fields i am in. But um, the books do kind of well, and, and so I signed another two-book deal, and I have another book coming out called Make Trouble, which is my is a gift book of my commencement speech I gave at RISD a couple of years ago. That comes out very soon, and I'm going on a three-week tour for that. So, uh yeah, I continue to be a writer. I write movies, I write books, I write my stand-up show, I write everything. I think I'm probably a writer more than any other job I've ever had because I use writing in every one of those jobs. Mm-hmm. I've never directed a movie I didn't write, and I know I never will.
0: And why, I mean, is it just not of interest to you to, like, try it? No, and- it's
1: not, because to me, thinking it up is the most fun. <sighs> From then on in, uh, to make it real, then the hell begins. <laughs> Yeah. With all the notes, and when you're writing it and thinking it up, it's just you and the characters that you're giving birth to in your head. You don't have to hear what anybody thinks of them Yeah, You haven't had it market-tested, but they say, who's the least favorite character, and they pick the villain. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, it seems Market-testing, bit... though, no, I You know, I had a a uh, the, what's the name of the company that does it, NRG or whatever. The head of the company once said to me, I don't know what, what norm do we test you against? Which I thought was very honest.
0: (laughs) Yes, very honest. Because, I I mean, I was thinking, I mean, sort of return to the question of, like, reality television and this, I don't want to say raunch culture because it's so kind of, like, toothless. I've
1: never seen a reality television film. Yeah. I I haven't because I find the concept insulting to the people doing because it's elitist. It's asking you to feel superior to right. what you're watching and make fun of those people. And I don't have people say, Well Joe, what do you think do? I disagree. I don't think I've ever asked you to feel superior. I've asked you to in wonder and amazement at some characters, but not feel superior and laugh at. I hope you're always laughing with them.
0: Right. I mean, to sort of return to polyester for a second, the, the thing with reality television is that in polyester, the, the villains say we're free, white, rich, and happy. And that seem and like the whole point of uh, a lot of your subversion or the bad, quote unquote, bad taste in your films is to take down what is proper society, all of these structures that are like oppressive to the characters that we're actually on the side of,
1: you know. Yeah, after she said that in the movie, I think she gets run over by a car in about three minutes. <laughs> yes, so.
0: exactly. So <laughs> and so, and so. I feel like the, the trash in your films is more about, it has a different relationship to personality, and also I think maybe to nostalgia, and it would be, I mean, even thinking of something like Female Trouble, the way... You know, that film came out a few years before, like, American Graffiti and its relationship to, like, the late 50s, early 60s is so different than what anyone else was putting on celluloid at that time.
1: Well, you, you talk about female trouble in a way, I understand what you mean, but was female trouble nostalgic? I think it was predicting the future of punk but <laughs> more so than looking back.
0: Right. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't depicting the past in this loving way at all.
1: Oh, I think it kind of was. I mean I mean the that whole look and everything. I mean the the look of the people in that movie. But then Divine even thinks the Divine's character thinks she looks even prettier when she's scarred and everything. So in a way I was dealing with a certainly when I made that movie in nineteen seventy four. Well, in Baltimore, women still wore their hair like that. It took a long time for teased <laughs> hair to vanish from the stem. There's still one or two beauty parlors that do those hairdos for real without irony. Oh, wow. That, that are the rare birds of, of women that are much, very elderly now that still wear their hair like that, will we'll seek out a hairdresser that knows how to get an airlift or a double bubble, because <laughs> certainly the hairdressers of today do not know how to do that.
0: This interview is sort of nominally tied to the release of uh, Multiple Maniacs by Criterion. Right. By well, Multiple
1: Maniacs, the way Divine looked in that was before we had Van Smith, who was who did all the makeup and costumes and Divine's look from Pink Flamingos on. But I think Divine was very much in Multiple Maniacs being she would Divine was my Liz Taylor really, and yes. I think that was. Divine's Liz look certainly, what in multiple maniacs definitely with a mink coat and the eyebrows and the hairdo. It was it was influenced by Elizabeth Taylor and the Diane Arbus photo of the woman with the husband that looked like he was kind of illiterate and the baby that was jeweling, and she had perfect stenciled eyebrows and then Don Davender hairdo. I mean, in a way, that was the real a real kind of image in female trouble now in multiple maniacs it was more elizabeth taylor suddenly last summer i think
0: yeah well i mean I, the, even the way that she's introduced in the film where she you know she's lying she's reclining with yeah. her back to the camera it's like very venesque yes pose, right yes yeah. yes it's it's very It's cla- something classical about it
1: well it's, it's actually overexposed but I, I'll, I'll take classical <laughs> anyway.
0: <laughs> i mean actually i mean i wanted to talk to you about the camera work and the cinematography aside from any sort of like technical oh. issues i mean i think well, that- the technical,
1: i should be in you know cinematographer jail for, for <laughs> uh for zoom lens abuse because that was the first time we ever had one so i was just Using it constantly. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing when I made that movie, but that's why you can call it primitive or amateurish, depending on if you like the movie or not. um I was that whole movie was made with just myself and one guy that was kind of like a Teamster type that I didn't know that somehow got that equipment that I rented. <laughs> I didn't ask where he got it. I think it came from a TV station because. Uh, I mean, he didn't, he didn't steal it, he took it back, but I don't know if they ever knew that it was being rented to me because those were the kind of cameras before they had video cameras, so those kind of magnetic sound on film, kind of reversal film, was the kind of cameras that the news teams used at the time. Mm-hmm. So um, I didn't know how to do any of it. He called me and helped me, and I tried to find him because I thought, what could he have thought, you know? I mean, he would spend like 20-hour days of us shooting... Well, he shot only the stuff that had sound film. He wasn't there for the Rosary job. That might have been a bit much for him. But um, all all the 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 footage that just has no lip sync and just has um, music under it that that was filmed with a silent camera, a Bell and Hell wind up camera, the kind same kind I'd used for Mondo Trasho.
0: Yeah, I mean the conclusion of the film, you know, which is uh, scored to whole s- the Mars section of the, right. the the planet suite. I mean, it's weird because you obviously, you know, you were reacting to a lot of things that were in the air in that film. You know, the Manson murders. I mean, you talked about how you have had to like sort of re- rewrite a bit of the script because the the murders were solved.
1: Yeah, because when we made a it- no one knew who did that crime, right? Right. And we and, and the plot was that Devine had tricked the husband into thinking he did it. But once they, even when they caught Manson, nobody knew that that name was going to go in crime history or anything. Even, even, even David Locker says, "Who are these people? I never heard of these people." And <laughs> no one had heard of these people. Right.
0: <laughs> and I mean the the ending though, like you know when Devine is sort of like stalked down by the uh, National Guard, it's Obviously it's sort of like the end of a monster movie because she's become yeah. she's she's crazed, she's foaming at the mouth, she is like a literal like, you know, mass murdering monster, but then it also really like prefigured Kent State in a weird way, which happened
1: like Well, I think in a way it was a happy ending because Divine says I'm who could feel this far gone. I mean, Divine always wanted to be a monster. Divine wanted to be Godzilla. Divine didn't want to be a woman. He wanted to be <laughs> Gorgo, or or he wanted to, what he says, stop out, stop out entire cities <laughs> with one. You know, I mean, that is what Divine's character there wanted to be. In real life, Divine was a mild-mannered overweight man that was kind of a nerd in high school and and was hassled for doing nothing really except being kind of vaguely feminine. So I, I think he used that rage later to, to be in Multiple Maniacs. And I, I think Divine didn't really, when we were making Multiple Maniacs, didn't really think it would go as far as certainly he didn't expect Criterion and Janice Films to release it 40, 50 years later. <laughs> right. But um, I think he, he had been, we had all been arrested for making Mondo Trash So he was nervous to go out. I mean, you think about it, he's running down the street in full drag with fake blood all over him. You know, <laughs> When no one said we were good, then we had no critical. Reputation of any kind. I mean, we had been arrested. That's all that had happened to us. So, so and Divine was afraid of that. You know, it was illegal to be in drag then. Probably. I mean, it was. This was in 1968. So things had not changed at all. There was no such thing as gay marriage or gay rights or anything then. It was. Uh, it was. You know, you go to drag balls. They were in. Pimps ran them, and they were in really scary ghetto neighborhoods where the drag queens had switchblades and stuff, the ones we used to go to. So it was not what it is today, drag, which is on you know, basically
0: every sitcom. Right, or even the fact that straight people use slang that was formerly exclusively only used by drag queens in a very familiar way. But I wanted to ask, you know, you were talking about critical reception just a moment ago. I read this interview where you said you had written to you actually called Parker Tyler, who is one of your favorite film critics, to like review your work and he said that he was too you know, too ill to do so.
1: Well this was I think Pink Flamingos and I think it was right when it's gonna open and I love Parker Tyler and I read all his stuff. And so he was listed in the phone book. I mean, he was obscure even then when he was a lot. At the height of his career, he was fairly obscure, I think. Right. And, uh, and so I called him. And he said, who, who is this? What? And, you know, he was, yeah, I don't think he was able to come see it. But I did talk to Parker Teller on the phone, so I'm, I'm happy about that. Yeah. And I mentioned Parker Taller to people today, and no one really, not many people know who he is.
0: Yeah, it's um he was David Board, you do. David Boardwell did this wonderful book recently that sort of appraised his writing style along with um Manny Farber and a couple other right. writers of that era, but I I wonder are there any pieces by him that sort of stick out in your mind? Pieces of what? Of of film criticism by Parker Tyler that you Oh,
1: certainly his book on underground movies and uh and and you know some of these books were like the shadow of an airplane on the Empire State Building. I mean, you read them today, you're amazed that they were published only because they're very obscure. But people bought those kind of books then. Yeah. And and Parker was was an intellectual who also had written. Like, didn't he write with what's the other guy? The Young and the Evil. And he had he 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 was very much involved in the culture then. And and. And also pretty, really radical voice at the time. And, um, and and I read about him the same time I was reading Jonas Mika's and all, all that kind of stuff. So, so basically, Parker was, uh, we need a new Parker trailer. That's, that's <laughs>
0: <laughs> I feel like it's hard because they're, it's hard to find a new way to sort of rebel against, obviously, like I was much, you know, reality television has absorbed, or even like bad, comedy, like bad Hollywood comedies, have absorbed so much of what was making fun of good taste, right? Oh, certainly.
1: That's the reason when I made for an art show I had in New York, I made Kitty Flamingos where I rewrote (laughs) uh, Pink Flamingos for Children because you're right, now Hollywood makes $100 million gross-out movies and they're not funny. Right. So it's gone pretty much as far as it can... The same as exploitation, I anything. I mean, the last great exploitation movie was Harmony Korine's uh, Spring Breakers, I think, and and it's really hard to to find movies like that anymore. They, no, they still have movies that are start but they're all European. Yeah. And it's amazing to think how does Bruno, how, how does he get his films Because the government <laughs> pays for it. And um, can you imagine happening that happening in America? Can you imagine the government? <laughs> paying for Matt Porterfield's movies. They should. Yeah. Because he makes European art films in Baltimore.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, I guess sort of the, the elephant in the room is Trump, who is, you know, the uh, sort of the epitome of bad taste, and he's taken bad taste to the White House.
1: He hasn't decorated in there yet. I don't think anybody's <laughs> there but him. But even his own home, I say this in my stand-up show, his own home looks like Little Richard decorated it before he got money. <laughs> It's true. I mean, his—it's not a joke. You, you look at how he lives, and you think, this you gotta be kidding!" I mean, this is like so nouveau. It's like the mo- it, its not even good bad taste. It, you know, it's—he's a hair hopper. That's all. And that's a word. That's a Baltimore word. That just means someone that spends too much time on their hair and <laughs> pretends to be richer than they are without irony. And um, I, I'm not so sure still if we ever see the tax. I think he doesn't have any money. I, I no, think I he's know. in debt. And I think that's why he, who knows, that one thing that Rachel did was maybe the only tax reports where he did pay taxes, maybe.
0: Yeah, I would agree with the assessment that he's either in debt or, you know, he's, um, he, he doesn't yes, actually. But I have
1: to give him credit. If he legally took every deduction he could, so do I. Right. So does everybody. And you're a fool if you don't.
0: Well, I think that's actually probably that's probably more why people voted for him or think that he's a good he's a good businessman because it is like, yeah, the system is set up in that way. And so you would be foolish not to do that.
1: Well, no, it would be irresponsible to your companies, to the stockholders. Right. Stuff. I mean, you, you, of course you don't. You want to pay only the amount of tax you have to be, or else you give money to people. That's not taxes, because you don't get to say where that money goes. That's the problem with taxes.
0: Right. How, how does an artist make a statement against somebody who is, you know, so gauche? Even him being in office seems to undermine it, the office of president.
1: Well, I I certainly use him heavily in my... um. Stand-up show because you can't not, and the yep. thing is you constantly have to do rewrites because there's so much news happening every day. Because of him, mm-hmm. that uh, you you cannot ignore it. You can you cannot ignore it in comedy. And is it hard to parody a, a, a fool basically? Um, no, it isn't because he sets himself up for. it. You know, you try to talk. He talks about. I heard that son talking about the Trump Library. Thought, what could be in that? You know, <laughs> he does never read a book. He didn't even read the ones that supposedly he wrote that were ghosts. So what could possibly be in the Trump Library? And I, you know, it, what art is he going to hang in the White House? I mean, I I'm amazed what his taste in art could be. I, I don't. No, just pictures of himself, I guess. Yes. <laughs> but did I think he didn't pay for him. didn't I could be wrong, but didn't Warhol paint him and he didn't want him or so or didn't pay for him or they ordered they couldn't talk him into paying for him, I forget. Yeah,
0: I was yeah, I was one of those. It was uh, mid eighties, sort of his initial brush with fame. Right. Well, that's
1: why I don't even believe. I think he believes half of what he said, and I think the Pence is way more dangerous. Oh yeah. Because Pence believes what he says. Trump just says whatever he says so he can win. You know, it doesn't matter really. Um, Who knows? You know, it's as soon as the conversation starts to Trump, you can't stop it, and then it's like, I think, oh God, here we go. But yet. It, 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 it's irresponsible to not talk about him today because um, he is there, and what's so much worse is the people he's appointing.
0: Yes, absolutely. But maybe we could switch to a happier topic, which is right. uh, your Christmas cards, which are sort of very very famous. Where do you get your inspiration for those? You know, every
1: year i got to think up one. I try to do it by summer. My, People that work for me start thinking, okay, what is it, what is it? You know, and each year it's hard. I don't know what next year's is, so it's hanging over my shoulder. Um, I don't know. Every year I try to send a card that I think would make me laugh.
0: There's somewhat related to your... Uh sort of your work in visual arts as well there's they're sort of like sometimes
1: yes in a way you know i always liked the idea when my father was young he would send a calendar every year with his company's name on it a lot of people did. pia Zadora used to send a gift every year i have still right at my desk i'm looking at it pia 1984 a uh, pencil holder that I still have. So I, I like the idea. My Christmas card is kind of like my ad every year. Mm-hmm. And um, when you know, I did have a calendar, I had an advent calendar, which is uh, the little doors open instead of the nativity scenes. It was like George Kuchar's drawing of me <laughs> from the Kuchar brothers. So I always, that was the Christmas one. Um I, I just kind of, I don't know, it's just, a, it, it is, I guess, an art piece, like a, something I send every year that hopefully my, I have a really good mailing list and that the people get it. They all tell me they save them. So, and I save a few Christmas cards every year, too, so I'm, I'm happy if you save them. If you have a complete collection, I guess it's a good one.
0: <laughs> and I guess before we close, what's the last great film that you've seen or just enjoyed?
1: I tell you, I saw last night, personal shopper and mm. I'm a huge fan of her. I liked, I liked the whole movie. I thought it was fun. It had, it had things I didn't expect in it. I didn't know what was going to happen. So I would say that that's a movie I saw last night. I paid to see it in a movie theater. Did you see it?
0: Yes, of course. I really liked and it. I really I liked
1: it. I liked really good. She's gorgeous. So fucking gorgeous. And uh, and really good actress. And I never saw the vampire movies, so no. I don't I, that, I That's not even in my mix when I think about it, which I guess it is for most people.
0: Yeah, I feel like a lot of people sort of championing her as a great actress is like a subversive or taking the lowbrow and making it highbrow, but really she's a great actress. in
1: those movies too about.
0: Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen them either, but it's like she's, she's just great and whatever in this movie just really shows her reacting and like... It's like the she full range
1: of movie she made in France too. Clouds of Sister Maria. Wasn't she then like a, a movie star's assistant also, kind of in that one?
0: Yeah, it's movies where Kristen Stewart gets to play not Kristen the, 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 Stewart. Director. Oh, Olivier Assayas.
1: Yeah, I don't know, but it, that was a good one too. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for sure. Doing thank this. you,
1: and I'm still get some comment in the mail. but always say it's, it's a good one. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm always very thrilled to be in that magazine. All right. Even when they're mean to me. Ah. <laughs>
0: You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, and edited by Michael Oatmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.